as you know, I, I was just going to look up to speak to the guys up here. <laughs> um, as you know, at Hamilton Road, we're keen to make faithful followers of Jesus Christ. You've heard me say that many times. But today I want to get a, a little bit more personal about that. I, I speak to the crowd, but today I want to speak to you. And I want to ask you, how is that going for you? Do you feel you're growing as a faithful follower of Jesus Christ? Can you see God at work in your life? I'm going to guess that many of us find it hard to give a, a wholehearted yes to that. We can't see God at work, or at least not as much as we'd like to. He seems strangely silent or absent. Uh, I was reminded of the struggle that we have with this this week. I was visiting with a, a woman. She told me how much she, she loved to worship the Lord and to sing his praises, how she'd been doing that all her life. And then the next breath, she said, Christoph, I, I just don't think I've done well. I, I don't think I'm good enough. She seemed to have little assurance that God was really with her, that he was pleased with her, that he was working in her life. Over the years, I've been pastor by now to many people and many different kinds of people. And I, I think I've learned some of the reasons why we find it hard to believe that God is at work in us, in our lives. One person will say, I'm an outsider. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I don't have that deep Christian heritage that others seem to have. I'm an outsider. I only joined the church a, a month ago, a year ago, a decade ago. I still feel like a, a blow-in. Everyone else is further in than I am. They're, they're all ahead of me. I'm an outsider. I'm from a different part of Ireland or the world. Uh, I'm from a different part of the socioeconomic spectrum. I have different politics. I'm from a different denomination. I'm an outsider. And I just don't have a strong sense that God's interested in the types of me. Another person will say, God's not that interested in me because I'm so ordinary. I can't keep myself interested in my own life. I wouldn't expect the Lord to have any great interest in me. I'm not a minister or a missionary. I'm not even a doctor or a teacher. I, I'm just... I'm just a, a classroom assistant or, or just a joiner or just a software engineer or just a mum. I'm just doing my job, quietly moving through my life, nothing to see here. Why would it interest God? It's so ordinary. And for every person that says, I'm an outsider or I'm so very ordinary, Another person says, I am broken. My life's broken. It's my marriage. It's my family. My kids. It's myself. My life is broken. And my heart is broken. It wasn't always like this. There was a time when... When, when I held my head up, when I expected to see God do great things in me and for me. 
But as I look now at the train wreck that my life has become, I've come to the conclusion that God doesn't care about me. And quite frankly, the longer it's gone on, the longer I feel he doesn't care about me, I find it harder and harder to care about him. I still go through the motions, but my heart's not in it. My heart's broken. I'm broken. I've been your pastor for a couple of years by now, so I've come to know you a little. And I I see you. I see the outsiders. I see the ordinary ones. And I see you broken ones. This morning I want to take you to this part of God's word, help you see what God might be doing in your life. I want to bring you to this humble little book of Ruth. What we're going to do is really quite simple. We're going to read the story, meet the characters, and see something very surprising and beautiful. Is that okay? Let's do that. The narrator sets the scene very quickly at the start of her story. Verses 1 and 2 tells us of a famine, how it prompts a family uh, to make a move from Bethlehem in Judea to the land of Moab. The move makes sense. Uh, Moab's 30 or 40 mile journey east across the Jordan, the northern part of that country is on a fertile plateau. It has a considerably different climate than Bethlehem. So in a sense, it was the ideal place to go to escape a famine. And these opening two verses of the book, they present Naomi as a happy woman. Her, Her name, we're told, in a footnote to verse 20, means pleasant. And we get this sense that actually she's quite well named. When Naomi left Bethlehem, when she set off on her three-day journey to Moab, she's got a good husband with her, two fine sons, and life is sweet. It's not plain sailing, but then life rarely is. There was a famine after all. But we can easily imagine that she and her family as they, even as they traveled towards Moab, thought of it as a temporary hardship, a momentary setback. At the beginning of our story, Naomi has what every woman in her culture dreamed of. We talked about this a while ago. In that Jewish worldview, she had everything that a woman dreamed of. She had a family. Not only a husband and children, but the prospect of grandchildren. For Naomi, life was sweet. We've already said life wasn't perfect. The loss of a harvest would be a considerable setback in in that kind of a culture. But that loss, her first loss, simply doesn't prepare us for the losses to come. Verse 3, with a powerful economy of words, the narrator tells us, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. Just sit with that for a moment. Her husband died. Many people in this room today and listening online know what that is like. To lose the love of your life. And there's a particular intensity to the heartache when 
when the loss happens before the person reaches their prime. And, and that's what we, we gather. And Naomi's not old at this stage, we don't think. She's probably middle-aged. Judging by what she says about herself uh, a little later in the narrative, I think she's probably a few years younger than me. Naomi's husband died. Naomi's husband, Naomi's heart is broken. Suddenly life is not so sweet. And the narrator doesn't bother with a detailed timeline, but he, he tells us that while her dreams were crumbling on the one hand, two more dreams came true. Naomi's two sons. All you want as a parent is that your kids meet a nice, a nice girl, a nice boy. Naomi's two sons met nice girls and married. I think this is how we often deal with our heartache in life. It's a common and a quite natural way to deal with loss. I've lost Elimelech, but at least I still have the boys. And I've got these two new daughters. I still have family and I still have security. This will help me with the pain of this dream that's just died before me. Just as she was coming to terms with her loss and beginning to enjoy life with her daughters-in-law, the rug was pulled out from under Naomi entirely. Verse 5, both Malam and Killian died. We're not told why. We're not told how. We're simply left to imagine. Imagine what Naomi's life is like. Blow after blow after blow. Utter heartbreak. And as I look, I know that some of you know this. Some of you are living this today. These five verses at the start of the book, they set the scene for everything that follows. They tell us what this story is going to be about. It's called Ruth, but I think it's the story of Naomi tells the story of a very ordinary woman whose heart has been broken. Her life was sweet and it's become unbearably bitter. Actually, when I use that word bitter, that, that's not my words, is it? It's Naomi's. Come and listen in as she talks to the people in Bethlehem about her life. We read about it in verse 19. She was in Moab. She received word there that the famine in Bethlehem was over. So she decided to return home. And Naomi's return caused quite a commotion. People were excited. Can, can this be Naomi? It's hard to know why they're asking that question. Was it their astonishment that she's returned after all these years? We know that it's at least 10 years, but it, it could be quite a bit longer. Or... Had her traumas taken such a toll on her that she's almost unrecognizable to her friends? Can this be Naomi? Possibly it's a bit of both. In either case, Naomi returns to Bethlehem an entirely different woman than she left it. 
The narrator doesn't tell us much about Bethlehem's response to Naomi when she first returned, but I can't help but wonder how we'd respond if, if she re- had left here and returned to here in her similar circumstances. Imagine for a moment that you're out there in the welcome center with Naomi after this morning's service, and imagine she tells you about these recent events in her life as she returns back to our church family. How would you respond? How would we respond as a church family, a community of God's people? Dr. Larry Crabb is a Christian counselor and he says that the Christian community is often a dangerous place to be when your dreams shatter. Church is too often a place of pretense and therefore a place without hope. When brokenness is brushed aside, where the real story is never told, the power of God cannot be felt. Where brokenness is invited and received with grace, the gospel comes alive with hope. If you're broken today, let me say that you're welcome here. Let me ask forgiveness for the time when the church family here or any other church family that you've been a part of hasn't been able to welcome you in your brokenness. Let me ask too for patience as we learn how to do this better. I've said the narrator doesn't tell us much about how Bethlehem responded to Naomi when she first arrived, but but he does tell us how Naomi responded to Bethlehem. You can imagine how the conversation went. Wow, Naomi, is it really you? It's been so long. How's things? How you been? And any time anyone asks any of us that question, we always give the same answer. Fine, thanks. What about yourself? Not Naomi. She's not pretending. Don't call me Naomi, she barks, verse 20. And you'll remember that Naomi means pleasant. There's nothing pleasant about my life. Nothing sweet here. God has made it bitter. I left here with a full life with a husband and with two sons. I left here with dreams of a happy future and God has brought me back empty. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Bitter. Because that's who I am. God has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune on me. Look at that. She doesn't even just say God allowed it to happen. She blames God. What do you make of that? There's something we don't hear every day. A blistering attack on God. It's certainly not the sort of thing we like in polite company like this. Surely God won't stand for that. Surely Naomi's going to get it. What's interesting in the book of Ruth is that Naomi doesn't get it. Twice in this chapter, Naomi complains against God. She accuses him of everything bad that's happened in her life. 
But there's no suggestion that what she's doing here is wrong. Naomi's complaint here is pretty serious, by the way. There's almost a, a, a sarcastic element to it. it. comes in a legal form, you see. If you notice in verses 19 to 20 that she refers to God as the Almighty in English, that's, that's Shaddai in Hebrew. Whenever you talk about God as Shaddai, you're talking about a particular aspect of his character and his role. That is God as the righteous judge. He's supposed to be fair. Abram, the founding father of Israel, he birthed a tradition of expecting God to be fair. He said, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Well, as far as Naomi's concerned, El Shaddai, God the judge, has failed to be just and to be fair. And she's not going to cover for him. She voices her complaint. Naomi gets into the story by complaining, says Eugene Peterson. Though it seems impious and even blasphemous to some, the plain fact is that such formalized complaints are fairly common in Scripture. There are times when the biblical position is at the plaintiff's side. Friends, God doesn't just tolerate this kind of complaint. He welcomes it. If we really believe that God's able to do whatever he wishes and we believe that he's loving and kind, then we're going to have to wrestle with the brokenness in our own lives and in the lives of those whom we love. To wrestle with our heartache is no sin. To have big questions for God is no sin. Petulant Jonah, earnest Jeremiah, persistent Job, Naomi joins in the, the heritage of those who take God seriously and struggle with him. If you find yourself angry to God, ready to shout your complaint, I say do it. Do it. Join the community of those who take God seriously. And we want as a church family to, to join in with you, to take your pain seriously and to hold it with you before God. As we read this opening chapter of the book of Ruth, we're faced with a huge question, a question that must be resolved. Why did these things happen to Naomi? Why did God allow them God did nothing to preserve Naomi's dreams of happiness. He did nothing to ensure that she and Elimelech would grow old together. She did, he did nothing to ensure that she would uh, have her two sons with her in her old age. He did nothing to ensure that she would one day have grandchildren playing in her lap. Why does God, who's all loving and all powerful, allow our dreams of the good life to shatter. The book of Ruth is going to help us find an answer to that question. The opening five verses of this chapter tell the story of Naomi's life falling apart in 71 Hebrew words. 
Near the end of the book, there's another paragraph of 71 Hebrew words telling a happy story. It presents Naomi, a content older widow. She's still a widow, still the mother of two unresurrected sons, but she's a woman resting joyfully in the fulfillment of different dreams. That's how this story ends. If Naomi could stand before us this morning and speak to us now, I suspect she'd say something like this. Yes, my dreams shattered. Yes, my heart was broken. But in ways that I could never have imagined, everything has worked out for the best. It was hard But don't let the pain of your shattered dreams cause you to miss the better dreams that God wants to give you. He wants to change your life for good forever. That's where the story ends. But we have a bit of a way to go to get there. We've got to go back to the beginning. That's what we're going to do over these next weeks. Just how did God work to restore this broken woman? A careful look at chapter 1 tells us that he's already been at work in very ordinary ways and in surprising ways. He's been at work in very ordinary ways in the kindness of people. As if to stress the importance of this, we find an inordinate amount of text the middle of our chapter is given to Naomi's journey home with her two daughters-in-law. Orpah and Ruth are the, the Moabite daughters-in-law, the widows of Malon and Killian. Whenever Naomi set off for home, they, they travel with her. And the narrative recounts three cycles of their conversation. There's a first cycle in verses 8 to 10. Naomi encourages them to return home Go and find new husbands to replace her dead sons. They refuse. No, we're coming with you to Bethlehem. Naomi must have been touched by their kindness. In a second turn of the wheel, Naomi tries again to persuade them to go home. She reminds them of the harsh realities of the times in which they live. It's well nigh impossible for a woman to survive without a husband to provide for her. I can't give you new husbands, Naomi says. Coming with me would would mean a lifetime of loneliness and poverty for you both. Go back home. Go to your loved ones. And eventually, after much persuasion, Orpah makes an about turn and heads home for Moab. With one last effort, Naomi tries to send Ruth back with Orpah, but to no avail, Ruth is passionate to to say that she's going to hold on to Naomi. Look at her plea in verses 16 to 17. It's one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I'll be buried. Naomi, I'm going to stay with you.
forever. Now, I've been saying that we can see God at work already in this chapter, in these dealings of the, the daughters-in-law with Naomi. Well, well how, how is that the case? Surely this is just a, a human interaction. Well, look, look again at Naomi's words, verse 8. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. The Hebrew word translated here as kindness is one of the great Bible words, hesed. It speaks of God's never-failing, loving kindness. Look at what she says. She wants God to show hesed to her daughters-in-law in the same way as they have shown his hesed, his never-failing, loving kindness to her. The storyteller's done something very skillful here. He's telling us that God's hesed and human kindness are closely intertwined. Naomi, broken as she is, bitter as she's become, knows that she's experiencing God's kindness in the kindness of her daughters-in-law. I suspect that she's not alone in that. Many of us, in times of our greatest heartache, have experienced God's kindness in the kindness of his people. So God's already at work in the ordinary ways of the kindness of people. By the end of the chapter, we're invited to expect that God's going to do something, something surprising. He's going to break in. Look quickly at verse 22. There's a lovely wee word that we simply can't see in the English, the Hebrew word hima. It's a word that draws attention to this verse and it says, hey, notice this, this is important. It's a phrase that, that acts a wee bit like a wink of the eye. This closing sentence of the chapter should probably be translated something like this. They arrived at Bethlehem and what do you know? It was barley harvest, just the right time. The narrator sets us wondering, is this coincidence? Or is God at work after all? Bringing the right people to the right place at just the right time. The chapter began with Naomi leaving for Moab, but it ends with her returning to Bethlehem. The chapter that began with a famine ends with a harvest. The story that begins with shattered dreams, it, it couldn't have a happy ending, could it? This morning as we've read Naomi's story and as we've learned of her utter heartache, We've seen her honest in her struggle with God. We've, we've seen her shown that despite appearances, God is still at work in ordinary ways and in surprising ways. Let's pray.